thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. Verizon is dedicated to giving more to those who give the most, and they are proud to offer military and veteran families their best pricing ever on Unlimited, with 5G included at no extra cost. Mix, match, and save with plans starting at $30 per line per month with four lines on Start Unlimited. Additional terms apply. For more information and to see if you are eligible, visit verizon.com military. Well, the end of the Century Series was inevitable. But not today. Not before a discussion on the Convair F-106 Delta Dart. That's right, our pal Bruce Gordon is back, this time as our main guest, and he tells us all about this Mach 2 Interceptor with, of course, a bunch of his great stories. Let's do it. He's got about 50 to go with his nose. F-4 Boeing, left side, 10 o'clock. F-4, you're about to get gunned. Overhead, overhead. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello. This is episode 106. And yes, the beloved Century Series is almost over, but not till we get through this episode on the Delta Dart. But, you know, it's been a good run. We've had a lot of amazing guests, and I don't know about you, I've certainly learned a lot on these older aircraft that I didn't know otherwise too much about before, and in fact, really learned a lot on the F-105. It was kind of strange listening to my own podcast, but Boat did a really fantastic job on the Thunder Chief with Colonel Morrissey, and so, yeah, great job, Boat. Really interesting to learn about that. And yes, we certainly will have an episode at some point on the Wild Weasel mission, and we can cover all the different aircraft when we do that. So be patient with us. We'll try to get around to that when we can. In the category of being patient with us, I don't know if it's painful for you to listen to, but for whatever reason, my voice is a little thrashed today. I'm not sure why. Probably too much talking or something going on. I'm not sure. But anyway, hope you don't mind it too much. Let's see. For announcements, the merchandise you know about on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com slash shop. Well, you can head over there and look for our F-105 shirt that came out last week. And of course, this week, the F-106 shirt comes out. And you better get them while you can because we're not sure how much longer we'll leave them up there. Now that the Century Series is over, we might take those down. But in the meantime, they've been selling pretty well. So go over and check that out. All right, see here in uh, F-104 episode under the duh category, I said mono a mono or whatever the female version of that is and not quite sure where my head was because someone wrote to kindly remind me that mono a mono means hand to hand, not man to man. So anyway, duh. (laughs) Now, the other thing is I don't normally go off on headlines too much, but there's been a couple lately that just really irk me. Here's one. Even by Pentagon standards, this was a dud the disastrous saga of the F-35. And another one, the U.S. Air Force quietly admits the F-35 is a failure. Now, here's my problem with this. Number one, if you go to these articles, you can't even barely find the article because you got to wade through Shaquille O'Neal's back pain medicine and every other ad known to 
God and man. So it's already difficult, which leads me to believe they need some sort of catchy, you know, headline to get you over there. And then when you finally do read it, yeah, the first paragraph's like, oh, uh, you know, the chief of staff Brown said they need another fighter because they don't want to drive Ferraris every day of the week or whatever he was quoted as saying. But when you really drill down on them, then later on, they're like, yeah, you know, it's a really amazing airplane, but you know, they're expensive and it took a long time. And we have these problems, which by the way, every modern aircraft is more expensive and takes longer and has development problems. So there's really nothing new in any of that, if you ask me. So I don't know if that's yellow journalism or whatever they call it these days. Here's another one. U.S. Air Force considering pilot training changes to curb flight accidents. So let me read some of this one for you. February 25th, 2021. The Air Force is considering changes to its pilot curriculum to curb the rising number of aviation accidents. The Air Force saw 72 accidents in fiscal year 2020, 10 more than in the previous year, but then you go down to paragraph four, despite the uptick in crashes and other accidents, the service noted that mishap numbers have dropped slightly in the past decade. People, it's called statistics, okay? If you flip a coin a hundred times, you're probably going to have, in fact, you're statistically likely to have five or six heads in a row. And if you don't, something's wrong. And so when you have an uptick, is it the end of the world? No. But we have this situation these days, I feel like, where everyone says, "Uh uh-oh, something's happening, and we have to do something. General quarters, everybody, battle stations. (sighs) For me, it's just fatiguing because what we end up doing is jumping around like, what are those knights from Monty Python, right? You know, the silly knights. In the end, though, we need to be mindful of, okay, yeah, if there's a problem, let's fix it. But let's not chase every little gremlin every time there's a minor uptick in something. Let's look at the bigger picture. And generally speaking, you might remember like a couple of years ago, remember there was like all these mishaps within a short period of time and there was congressional hearings and everything. And then guess what happened? They went away because that's what happens. You have a cluster and then you have no mishaps. In general, nobody cares when there's none. They only care when there's some and they got to point the finger at somebody. So yeah, I know I'm on my high horse here and I can't stand it when people go crazy over something and then they find some little nugget to make this sensational headline to get you to come watch all these ads and everything. All right, enough on that. Uh, Let's see, what else is going on? How about some listener questions? That's probably fairly neutral. Sorry, I don't know why I'm all fired up today. Uh, Let's see, I got an email here from Cameron Wright from the Atlanta, Georgia area. He says, how far in advance of an aircraft being retired is that training pipeline shut down? Good question, Cameron. There's really no set number. I mean, it just depends on how manned that community already is. If it's not very manned, they're going to keep the training open longer. And even if they train somebody and six months later it goes away, then they just train that person again. It really just depends. And there's no one solution. It's usually about a year, plus or minus. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Joe. Jason from Ontario, Canada, Discord port. This is close as I can get to a call sign. I raced time attack for two years. And the anticipation of lining up for hot laps is crazy. Adrenaline just pumps. My question to you is, what goes through your head before you catapult off an aircraft carrier besides letter rip, tater chip? In grid, I was always worried about my shoelaces. It was just a weird thing that always went through my mind. I want to thank you for what you do. I also want to thank you for the service you and your guests have done. It honestly means the world to me being in Canada and never being able to serve for what I do. So thank you. 
you have a great day and I hope more people get to know your podcast. Thanks. Have a great day. Ciao. All right. Well, first I want to thank Jason. He's our newest Patreon air boss and he helps support the show. So as such, he gets head of line privileges for his questions. Jason, this is a good question because while you think you might be all stirred up listening to music in your head or like, you know, what is it? Queen music from uh, kind of magic from iron Eagle or top gun songs or whatever it is. In reality, if it's a day launch to a night landing or it's a night launch for a night landing, I'm already thinking about the night trap because I know it's coming and it's scary enough. At least it was for me. So that's what I'm thinking about. Otherwise, I'm just thinking is the trim set, all the engine instruments and everything looking right. And then uh, if they are, then sit back and enjoy the ride because on a catapult, you're just along for the ride. Unlike on a landing where it's really up to you. So anyway, let's take another question. This is from Alec from the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia. Wait a minute. Atlanta, Eric, Atlanta. Wait a minute. What's going on here? I'm hearing a lot of stuff from Atlanta. Hope that's not a precursor for my newfound primary career here as a podcaster and not having to go back. Anyway, uh, let's see. Alex says, in civilian flying, we train pilots to focus on airspeed during all phases of flight, from takeoff to approach in the pattern and especially landing. We teach what angle of attack is and its importance to stalls, but not much else. Few general aviation aircraft have AOA indicators. Conversely, many military aircraft have AOA indicators, and I've heard that military pilots are trained to focus on AOA over airspeed right from the start of flight training. How true is this? If so, why does the military harp on AOA more than civilian flying, and which do you prefer? So, Alec, I imagine that civilian or you know general aviation aircraft don't need AOA indicators because for the most part, airspeeds are probably close enough for you to do what you need to do. And it's just more equipment and heavier to have an AOA indicator on board. Now, airspeeds change, as you know, with temperature and altitude and winds and various things. You have all kinds of different airspeeds, indicated, calibrated, equivalent, true, ground, et cetera, et cetera. But AOA is absolute, I would argue. And so, at least in the Navy, the AOA is important when landing aboard the ship because you have to have various things set just right based on the attitude of the aircraft. For example, the landing gear are built to withstand the landing at a certain angle of attack as they're coming down onto the deck, as well as the hook-to-eye, which is what we've talked about before on this show, where the lens is set so that the pilot is looking at the lens and what the LSOs are looking at is where is that hook coming across the ramp so it grabs that third wire, ideally. So... I think also in BFM, when you're max performing, you're looking at AOA and you're not worried about speed per se because it can change at different altitudes. So overall, I just think AOA is more precise. I think GA can get away with airspeeds because it's close enough. Maybe there's someone out there who knows better who can tell me if I'm wrong, but I did socialize that with at least one friend and he thought that was a fairly good answer. So let's go with that. All right, next, let's take a second phone call. Hey, Jello, it's Dave George again. I call from Boulder, Colorado. I just started my cross-country flights, and man, four-flight makes that so much easier. And I was wondering if military pilots use four-flight, or what is a piece of technology they use in its place. Anyway, love the podcast, love that 100th episode, and hearing from all those previous guests. Have a great day, and uh, stay safe. Bye. All right, Dave. Well, thanks for the question. I should honestly come to your place and answer this in person because I really like Boulder. I love all the events out there and activities and things you can do, especially in the winter and in the summer for that matter. But 
Anyway, for those of you who aren't aware, ForeFlight is a tablet-based navigation and weather and resource app for pilots. It's got information on airfields, weather, and all these different things. Dave, when I was retiring, right before I did, the Navy was beginning to issue iPads with something that was like ForeFlight. I don't remember. It might have even been ForeFlight. And so I've been out of it a little while. So I asked BS, you might remember him, Mike Walsh. He was our Navy flight school guest. And he's still flying F-15s in the Air National Guard. And he told me they don't even use paper pubs anymore. The Air Force issues them two iPads. I suppose they make sure that both batteries are topped off and have one as a backup. And they use ForeFlight exclusively. So, yep, military's using it. All right, we'll finish with an email from Pinto. Pinto says, after hearing the description of a BFM fight, they describe taking a lot of shots. Do these 1v1 fights usually go on for a long time? I thought they would call kills to simulate missiles in training. Why would they keep fighting after the first shot? Well, Pinto, this is a good question, but the answer is, number one, not all missiles are perfect, so it's not always a kill. But in the visual arena in training, we assume that if you have a valid shot, you can call a kill. But you don't always want to call a kill depending on what you're doing. So if you're out there and it's first shot, first kill, let's come back and you know get a refreshment. Okay, fine, then call it. But in most ACM or 1v1 or BFM flights, you have training you want to do, and it's not just who gets the first valid shot for a kill. It's let's look for these line of sight rates to change. Let's do a deck transition. Let's see if we can stay offensive when we started offensive, or if we started defensive, let's see if we can get neutral at least, or maybe even offensive, especially in perch BFM, like offensive and defensive BFM. That first shot, it's valid. It's a kill. Well, <laughs> we're not going to get any training if we knock it off right away. So the training isn't just based on those shots and kills. It's based on what are we trying to accomplish? A lot of times that's other training and not just getting a kill. Good question though. All right, folks. Well, that'll do it then for our announcements and listener questions. As always, you can submit your questions. We'll try to get to those as quickly as we can. And there'll be some information in the closing bumper by our announcer, Clint Bell, on how to do that. Now, as we transition into our feature interview, first off, a little disclaimer. I don't know what was going on with our Wi-Fi this day, but when Bruce and I recorded, it took us three different tries and we had some breaks and his microphone kept dropping out. So you might hear some of that. Hopefully Bernie's going to clean it up and it'll be transparent. Bernie's our producer. If you hear that, I know you'll forgive us. Otherwise, really not much else to tell you. You know who Bruce is. We're going to get right into it. So let's get going on the F-106 Delta Dart. All right, Bruce. Well, the Century Series has been a lot of fun. Let's see. We've had the F-100, 101, 102, 104. We even had the 105, and you've been there for most of them, but it's never been your turn to really have the spotlight, and that changes today. Well, I was really impressed with your F-104 and F-105 presentations. I had no idea that those guys could go so fast down low. (laughs) Yeah, well, Boat really did a wonderful job on the F-105, and I was a little jealous I didn't get to meet Colonel Morrissey. But yeah, the Century Series has been a lot of fun, and we're going to wrap it up with your sweetheart, Bruce, the F-106. Oh, yes, I love that airplane. (laughs) All right, well, before we do, you listen to the show, and you know, it's funny, actually, over the last couple weeks, people think you're part of the show now, which is fine by me. We'll call (laughs) you one of our co-hosts, but you know, we always start with the background on our guests, but let me take a stab at this, Bruce, because you joined us in early January for a happy hour. Actually, that was the replay that we recorded in November, but as I recall, you said you were born in the Philippines. Let's see, I think you lived all over the place, Hong Kong and Hawaii. 
Then you, of course, moved all over the place with the Air Force, and now you're in Kentucky. Did I get that right? Yes, there's a lot more to it. I was <laughs> seven years old when in Hawaii with the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Oh. So on all these World War II guys get out there, I say I got into the war before they were because I was on a convoy on Christmas <laughs> Day in 1941. <laughs> wow. To uh, get out of there, I presume. Oh, yes. Okay. And then you, I don't think we heard from you regarding your alma mater. Where'd you go to college? I went to Tufts University in Massachusetts. What did you study? I got a bachelor's there at Tufts, and later on, I got an MBA. Oh, okay. I was just wondering what your undergraduate degree was, but okay. And then, of course, we know that you spent uh, three years in Alaska. You complained you didn't get to go to any of the nice places. So uh, anyway, we can get into that a little bit, but uh, yeah, good stuff. Well, again, we're glad to have you back on the show, Bruce, and this time it's all about you. So let's start with the background on the F-106. We already learned a little bit about this on the F-102, but just fill in, if you would, any more gaps on what the aircraft was designed to do and some of its design history. Yes, the F-106 started out as the F-102B, and they decided that they were going to make so many changes, they'd make it a new airplane. It was the ultimate interceptor. They're going to have long range, Mach 2, and it had excellent radar, MB-1 nuclear weapon, and it was connected with the uh, SAGE system. Many of our planes were connected with the SAGE system stands for Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, which was a huge computer program. We actually spent more on SAGE than we spent on the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb. Wow. But it would send you signals by data link and put them on your screen. Now, this is all common now. You always expect these things. But when SAGE started, it was the largest computer system that the world had ever seen. And you take the name of IBM as International Business Machines. They thought they were going to be running reports, gather data, make reports. Sage was real time. The first time they were programming for real time, a huge task. Well, in England, all they did with their radar was defend England from attack from one direction, from Germany over a fairly small area. Mm -hmm. In the SAGE system, they had all the borders of the United States to defend, even from Cuba down below. Ah. And they had to put it all together and bring it into the central system at NORAD Command in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. Although people think that this was such an automatic thing that you just got up there and turned on your machine, it really didn't work that way. It was largely the first time that all the systems were linked together, including gap filler radars down below, and put into a system that could send you data link instructions. And we didn't do the automatic thing with SAGE hardly at all. But it did come up with heading instructions so you didn't have to use voice because one of the best things you can do when you're the bomber coming in is listen to the voice or jam the voice. We had various kinds of voice jamming, such as hell's bells, tones that would break up the human voice. There were very 
good things to break up these voice connections. So going to Data Lake was a huge thing, and it was done by Sage. But anyway, it was done for the 106, and that was one of our biggest things. So that's how we started, and by golly, uh, it did the things it was designed to do. Yeah. Well, I've taken a look at your YouTube channel. You can do a search for Bruce Gordon, and I think you have about a 10-minute explanation video there that people can check out a little bit more on Sage with pictures and videos and everything, right? Yes. It was a great program that the world might well forget, but great people worked on it. Okay. Well, it served its duty at the time. All right. So the F-106 is an interceptor and it was built to contain this SAGE equipment. So you could do com out data link intercepts of, I presume, Soviet bombers coming over the poles or from wherever you said, even down from Cuba. Now, was that, as we often ask, sometimes aircraft ended up being better at something they weren't designed to do. So for the F-106, did that end up being its bread and butter role? Was it good at these intercepts or did it find notoriety elsewhere? It was great at what it was designed to do. Okay. We had electronic counter-countermeasures that not even the B-52 could jam. We had a rapid tuning magnetron in there that would tune so fast that no two pulses that we ever sent were on the same frequency. And they didn't know whether you were going up or down the scale. It was random scale. We had random pulse repetition rates. Nobody could beat us in that. Okay. But we did find later on, we were always trained as interceptor pilots, and there were the fighter pilots who were a different group. And it was only when Vietnam came around that we discovered that the F 106 could actually outturn most airplanes. And I'll go into that in some detail later on. (laughs) In fact, we have a coming listener question about the F 106 in Vietnam, but. Interceptor mainly, um, if you did get into a visual arena with a fighter, not a bomber, of course, that should be no challenge. But how did it do in a dogfight? It was excellent. Let's take a look at our wing loading. Things we didn't know. Okay. We didn't realize. We have a wing loading of 52 pounds per square foot, okay, and a powerful engine. Now, you take a look at the F-4, and the F-4 has a 78 pounds per square foot. And then you look at, you know, the the MiG-21 actually had 92 pounds per square foot. And it didn't have as powerful as an engine as the 106. So it was discovered. I don't know whether Boyd discovered it or the Air Force people disagree who discovered it, that the F-106 was most like the MiG-21 in performance. Okay. And they got it to a test later on against the MiG-21 with a have donut program, which was a secret program out of Aerial 51. They had a MiG-21 and an F-106. I have donut program put the MiG-21 against virtually all our airplanes. So the F-106 test was very short, just a couple of things. It was a very basic test. They put them flying together at 35,000 feet, subsonic, and they lit burners and went together to supersonic. The F-106 accelerated to supersonic and went supersonic faster than the MiG did, probably because of its better 
supersonic performance. Then they both went into a hard turn, both in burner and both basically in following the same path. And the F-106 maintained its speed better. They both lost speed in the turn, but 106 maintained its speed better than the MiG-21, which then fell behind the F-106. But we didn't like that because he fell back into perfect gun position on us. (laughs) Well, but you started from an artificial beginning. so We started from an artificial beginning and proved that we had more power and could maintain our turn better than the MiG-21. So we discovered that we had a great turning capability, and they began to teach us fighter tactics. We had never had fighter tactics. They put us against F-4s and discovered we could outmaneuver the F-4s. And I have a little personal story on that. After all this, we went to Korea, and I was flying a routine mission out of South Korea. I was coming back with my wingman, and I gave him lead, and I dropped back, and I was working on my infrareds on his tailpipe. As he was going along, he was still in radar, and he picked up a bogey. Well, we just always bounced bogeys. That was just a general. (laughs) We always did. So I told him he had to bounce, and I dropped in the wing on him. We curled around. We found a F-4 that was clean. Apparently, it had been on a test flight, I believe, and was heading back to the same base we were, to Osan. And my wingman went underneath him, and then were synced speeds with him, and then pulled up slightly ahead of him. I pulled back on his right side, and I was looking at the sun. This guy was not he didn't have his head up and locked, shall I say. <laughs> and the guy in the back seat was writing something down on his pad. So I pulled up beside him so that my shadow fell on his cockpit. And when he saw my shadow, he looked up and he started to turn toward me. Uh, the airplane jumped like he was starting that. But then he saw my wingman had actually pulled ahead of him. So it was better to get onto my wingman. So both his burners came on, my wingman's burner came on, my wingman broke left, the F-4 broke left, I broke left right behind the F-4. We now went into a hard turn, then all I could see was the F-4, and I was using my infrared on him. I'm locking onto his tailpipe and doing my missile thing. Finally, he pulled up vertical trying to get away from me, and I'm looking into his bright tailpipes. And I couldn't see my wingman. So I called him. I said, I don't see you. Where are you? And he says, I'm right behind you. So he had already come around and he was behind me. (laughs) So about this time, I think the F-4 was running out of fuel. So he turned toward home and came out of burner. We joined up on his two wings and we flew uh, into Osan with the F-4 leading and 106s on both wings. But that showed that we were able to (laughs) outturn a clean F-4 starting from scratch. All right. So it's an interceptor that found some chops as a dogfighter because of its very low wing loading. And if it was that much uh, 
evenly paired with the MiG-21, Bruce, why don't you suppose they ever turn this thing into an aggressor or an adversary type of aircraft? Wouldn't it have done that role pretty well in training? They did. One of our first encounters was when the Navy asked us to come and run against them. And the uh, Navy did. And we flew F-4s against the Navy F-4s and against the Air Force F-4s. So, yes, they did. I don't know whether it was formal aggressor. No, I don't think so. But occasionally, we went down. Okay. Bruce, let's talk variants. Now, you've already said that the F-106 is sort of a variant of the F-102. But within the F-106 nomenclature, we have, obviously, the YF-106 for the prototypes and the QF-106 later for the drones, which I'm sure breaks your heart when they started shooting those down. But what did we have for the operational F-106, what, A's and B's? Yes, they had 277 A's were built and 63 B's. Okay. And what was the difference between them? The B model had two seats. And oh, okay. they put in the two seats. They actually lengthened the fuselage just a little bit, but they took 43 pounds of fuel out of our fuel tank to put that guy in the back seat. And most of us would rather have the fuel than that guy in the back seat. <laughs> now, Colonel Morrissey was already a little bit disparaging to backseaters. So you're going to have to go easy on them, Bruce. They've had a rough week. Obviously, it's different if you're going into combat with a backseater and less fuel versus, I assume, the F-106B, like the F-102B was used for sign-offs and training and refresher and recurrency, et cetera. Yes, but it was totally qualified. It could launch all the weapons. Oh, okay. And I'm sure you flew both. Yes. There was also one other variant, okay. the NF-106B by NASA. They had two of them. Ah. And they used them for NASA testing. Okay. So the Air Force and NASA flew the F-106. Did anyone else? No. Really? Why do you suppose that was? Well, we may, had a fairly short production run itself. And it was also a very expensive airplane at the time. As I said, you could almost buy three F-104s for the cost of a F-106. Why? Uh, our MA-1 computer system weighed 2,500 pounds. Holy smokes. With the computers and all that, they were vacuum tube computers when we started out. And they completely modified the aircraft for it. We had extra generators for it and all that. Now, later on, we converted from the vacuum tubes to solid-state computers uh, with chips. That made it so light, and those were early chips. That made it so light that I was a quality control man at the time. We had to put lead bars in the nose of the airplane to make up for the weight that we took out. <laughs> well, nobody wants to just haul around extra lead weight. That's too bad. But I'm guessing you needed that, what, for uh, the center of gravity calculations? Yes. Now, Bruce, if I see an F-102B next to an F-106B, I learned on our Delta Dagger discussion that I can tell the difference because the 102 is side-by-side -side and the 106 is tandem. But what if I see two single-seat aircraft next to each other? How do I tell the Delta Dagger from the Delta Dart? First of all, it's a TF-102, not the 102B. Oh. Okay, just detail. My apologies. When you see them first, the F-106 has a squared-off tail. The top of the tail is cut off. Okay. And the F-102, it comes up to a point. 
So you could tell that really quickly. And the other thing is a placement of the intakes. The 102, the intakes were forward, just forward of the cockpit. And the F-106, they were behind the cockpit. Oh. So this made a much shorter air intake area. And I believe they used that to put in the fuel tank. We put in a fuselage fuel tank, greatly increasing the uh, amount of fuel we had in the 106 than compared to the 102. But did that create a problem for the pilots? If you had your canopy open taxiing around, did you have to worry about things flying out and going down the intakes? Well, nothing flew out. We didn't have anything loose in the cockpit. Okay. And yes, it would. <laughs> it is running out right behind you there. Right. And you can turn around and look into the intakes. Even when you're flying, you can look into the intakes. Oh, wow. Well, I just thought like kneeboard cards or, uh, you know, the little pieces of paper and things you take with you for the codes of the day or whatever. But all right. Otherwise, when we talk about the looks of the F-106, it is basically a delta wing and it has no tail, traditionally speaking. Is that right? True. It has no horizontal stabilizer. So instead it has, I think I read elevons, like elevators and ailerons. And how did that do for handling? Was it a joy to fly or was it somewhat of a handful? It was a joy to fly. Yeah. Mixture controls very nicely. It was smooth. It did have a problem as it went high supersonic. As you continue going past Mach 1.5, shall I say, the center of pressure continues to move farther aft, giving you a farther rather nose-heavy thing is the center pressure lift is behind the center of gravity, which doesn't move, then you get nose-heavy. Now, we did have transfer tanks, extra fuel tanks far back that the F-102 didn't have, about as far back as you could put them. The primary purpose of the transfer tanks, they were full on takeoff, but we burned out the fuel quickly. But when you went supersonic, the fuel, extra fuel was transferred back to the T-tanks to try to move the center of gravity farther aft. So it was a way to move the center of gravity aft, was transferring fuel. To counteract the changing uh, center of pressure that way. As you went high supersonic. Okay. Very interesting. It didn't do it enough. One of the weaknesses, you talk about weaknesses, I'll talk about it right here. Okay. The weakness was that that didn't do enough to transfer the CGF. Ah. And as you went above to around Mach 1.5 or so, you got into what's called the hinge moment limitation. The elevons were too far aft, while as a center of pressure, moved back toward where the elevons were, you didn't have enough hinge to move the nose up. And you could have the stick all the way back jammed against your seat, and you couldn't get more than about four Gs. So the 106 needed a canard wing up front. And you'll see several other deltas came out with a canard wing. That's right. And they had a F-106X on the drawing boards that would have a canard wing up there to help us in that high supersonic turn. Okay. What happened? They either ran out of interest or money or something? They took all the money and gave it to the F-15. 
All right. Well, <laughs> sorry to hear that, Bruce. Okay, that could have been an interesting aircraft. Let's talk about the weapons. I guess let's start with we can check one off the block pretty easily. Did it do any air-to-ground roll at all? No. Certain versions of it I read had a gun. Would you train at all for air-to-ground with a gun or just too dangerous? It was strictly air-to-air. Okay. Did you ever fly the ones with the guns? No, I didn't. It came out after I left the 106. But I talked to people who did fly with a gun. It was a very accurate gun. Unlike the F-35, I guess his gun won't hit anything. But the <laughs> F-106's gun was quite accurate. And it was in case you got in too close to use missiles, which might have been in that case when I was in South Korea against an F-4. And I started out right behind him and stayed right behind him. If I had a gun, I could have shot him down easily. <laughs> Simulated, of course. Simulated. So, Bruce, I read that it was an M61, similar to what's in the modern aircraft, F-18 included, and it had, I think, around 650 rounds. But what I was surprised to read is it wasn't mounted inside the aircraft with the barrels sticking out at some point, but rather in the weapons bay. Is that right? Well, yes, the weapons bay is inside the aircraft. No, but the gun was mounted in the weapons bay. Or I guess, where were the barrels? The gun was mounted in the weapons bay. They put a little bump underneath it. Oh. An extra little bump where the muzzle could stick out. Oh, I misunderstood then. I thought maybe they like swung the thing out on a trapeze and hung it out in the uh, wind when you wanted to shoot it or something. No, it was entirely uh, internal to the aircraft and with just the muzzle sticking out. Okay, that makes sense. When they put that in there, they took out the ability to carry the uh, MB-1 nuclear genie. Okay. Well, we've talked about that both on the Happy Hour and some of the others, but did it also carry the Falcon, I think? Yes. I don't know if you could carry the gun and the aft Falcons. I think you could, because you could carry the uh, MB-1 and two missiles in the back. They took out the MB-1. I think you probably could carry the uh, Falcons in the back. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Okay, no problem. And you've said before that you didn't think Robin Olds's characterization of the Falcon as a complete waste was totally fair, huh? You you had a little love for the uh, aim for? I'm one of the people who believes Robin Olds was wrong, flat wrong. And the problem was not the Falcon missile, but the F-4 that did not have the computer system that was designed to launch the Falcon missile. At the very end, I was going to tell you some stories of using that computer system to uh, launch the missiles. 
Well, we can do it then, or we can do it now if you want. I know on your Sage YouTube video I watched that you talked about one where the ground computer failed and you were still able to consummate the intercept. So I don't know if that's one of them, but if you want to do it now, we can. Otherwise, we can keep talking about weapons, although I think that's it, right? The AIM-4, the Air-2, or you called it the MB, the Genie. Did it change nomenclature? The MB-1 Genie. Is that different than the Air 2A or something? That's the same missile. They just changed its name. Okay. The two things that you could do with the computer that they couldn't do with these other aircraft, I was put on the program to shoot down a Bomark missile. And the reason to shoot down the Bomark missile was to test a specification on the F-106 that it could destroy a target coming at you at 2,000 miles an hour. So I was flown out of Tyndall Air Force Base. They were going to also have F-104s try to shoot at these Bomarks. We didn't have too many of them to use as practice. But the plan was the F-104s would take off. Well, first of all, I would take off first. The 106 had plenty of fuel. That was one of the great things of it. I took off first, a half an hour before everybody else, and I went out to the area and uh, went around in circles waiting for everything to happen. So I had plenty of fuel. The F-104s didn't. They actually started on the runway, pointed down the runway, and they took off, and the Bomark missile, which was a Mach 2.5 missile, air-to-air breathing with a ramjet engines would fly right over the F-104s. And the 104s had sidewinders. Their job was to try to shoot down the Bomark with sidewinders as it went over their heads. Well, that worked just fine. The Bomark went right over them. One of them uh, fired a sidewinder, nearly hit his lead, but uh, the sidewinder missed and the Bomark went out on its route. It climbed to uh, 65,000 feet and turned in downrange toward me. And I came in, simplifying the whole situation, turned in with my 106 and accelerated to Mach 1.5. This gave me the 2,000 mile an hour overtake required by the specification. I was able to lock on to the Bomark coming in with my radar, and I had one of those. Falcon AIM-4G infrared missiles that Robin Oles hated so much. I had one of them, and I fired that AIM-4G, and I could see the Bomark. It was leaving quite a contrail. I could see it from 60 miles away coming at me. Wow. My problem was that as I'm doing all this, I'm not holding my altitude. I was starting to climb toward him. I was supposed to be at 45,000 feet. But I started climbing as I'm working on my radar, and so I did not have my desired clearance from this guy. But I had one missile. The missile bay doors opened. I fired this one AIM-4G missile. I could see it track right on the inlet spike of the left engine of the Bomar. And everyone says, you know, the Falcon didn't have a proximity fuse. It didn't need a proximity fuse. The thing hits. It doesn't hit. <laughs> Not if it smacks it, huh? It hit that Bomark. It blew off the left wing of the Bomark in a 
big blast. It rolled over and rolled over on top of me and dove at me. Oh, boy. Now, it's coming at me at 2,000 miles an hour now. I saw this ball of fire go racing over my cockpit, and then everything was clear. I said, splash one Belmar. And that showed its ability to kill at a very high speed with that same AIM-4G. Now, one more story. Okay. This was exactly the time that apparently Robin Oles was bad-mouthing the Falcon missile. He said that everything that we were doing, all our tests was all, we were tweaking up the missiles just before we fired and all this stuff, experts going over it. We were not doing fair tests. So they got together and said they were going to make an absolutely fair test. They said, we'll take some airplanes that are on alert now loaded at Selfridge, Michigan. <laughs> they had nuclear weapons on them. We will download the nuclear weapon and we will leave the two AIM-4Gs on. They took off the AIM-4F radar vessels that are up front. They took them off and left us the two AIM-4Gs, which are the ones that Robin Oles didn't like. We were told that we could have no maintenance on the airplane other than fuel and oil and all that sort of stuff, drag shoot. No maintenance at all. They were taking them off alert so the commander could pick the pilots he wanted because due to crew rest and all that, they were testing the airplane, not the pilots. So my commander picked me, and I had a wingman. The two of us took off and flew down. And the moment I started my F-106, I noticed that I had a range gate drift. The range gate is when you have the target in the chisel band, you're trying to lock onto it. If it's drifting, you can't lock onto the target. Now, that is a screwdriver adjustment. If I had designed the airplane, it happened so often, I wish I had a screwdriver in the cockpit that I could adjust it because it's a screwdriver <laughs> adjustment. Okay. You just open the front thing and the guy knows what it does and he says, turn a little bit and says, okay, that's it. And you close it up and off you go. But no. So I couldn't do any maintenance. So we flew down to Eglin, to Tyndall. There they briefed us on the mission. They were going to have as realistic a target as they could. So they used the MACE cruise missile. No augmentation, nothing else. It was a MACE cruise missile. They were launching that from Eglin. And we were to go out as a backup for the MACE. They were going to have a BQM-34 regular drone target. Okay. That was a backup target. We went out there, and my wingman said, hey, you got the Bomark. He said, I want the mace. Give me the mace. Now, I was a ranking officer, but I also knew my radar wasn't that good. So I said, okay, you could have the mace. So he took the lead, and we went out there, and they fired off this cruise missile. Uh, Mace cruise missile. Uh, we picked it up on radar and dropped down, and I dropped into number two position and watched it as he went in on the Mace. His missile bays opened, and he fired his two Falcons. Now, they both guided on that Mace, 
and they fired at the same instant. So they went out the bay. You could have drawn a ruler across between the two of them. They were exactly the same distance, the same three feet apart as they had been in the missile bay. <laughs> like twins. And they came zooming toward the mace. And as they got to the mace, they both tried to get in the exhaust at the same time. And they hit each other. Oh. Two falcons hit each other, and they blew up, and the explosion flipped the mace tail up and his nose down. I thought it was going to go in, but no, the mace's autopilot pulled that mace out of the dive and low on the water. I said, well, that didn't work. So I started to swing in to make my attack, and then I noticed it was slowing down. The mace was slowing down. He said, well, that thing has flamed out from the blast, and there's no pilot in there to start it again. So I did not fire. I stayed right behind the mace. Uh, you could see as it slowed down, and the autopilot pulled the nose up, and it tried to pull the nose up, and finally it stalled out and fell into the Gulf of Mexico. A uh, beautiful picture of the blue waters and this splash going all over everywhere. But then they turned me loose on the backup target because we had another. So I turned up on the regular BQM-34 target drone, the backup target. It had no augmentation, but now I had radar, but I couldn't lock onto it. So I used my infrared, and I locked onto it with infrared. Watched it come down. When I, I selected my infrared missile, I fired my infrared missile. It homed in on and blew up the BQM-34 and a big explosion. I didn't realize how close. I had not turned away. You're supposed to break away. And I didn't remember that. <laughs> I did not turn away. I was heading right at it. Oh. And this thing blew up in front of me. and. I actually had to fly through the fireball of this thing. Oh, geez, that's never good. I came back, landed, and looked over the plane. I did have some paint scratches from pieces of the thing, but fortunately, nothing else. But there we had sent two F-106s right off of alert. We had two targets, and we'd shot them both down. And there was no tweaking at all. So I said, <laughs> that missile, which we said had a about a 0.95 kill probability, 0.97 if you used both of them. One IR had a 0.95 kill. Okay. And that was from multiple tests. My answer to that is the F-4 didn't have the computer systems necessary to fire the missile. <laughs> You're a wonderful storyteller, Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Uh, it's been a few minutes, but if anyone's wondering who Robin Olds is, number one, shame on you. But number two, he is uh, quite a large figure in fighter pilot lore. He was what? A triple ace uh, downed enemy in uh, World War II yeah. in Vietnam. I think he was stuck in a staff job and they wouldn't let him go to Korea. But Larger Than Life, he wrote a book called Fighter Pilot. It's a great book. I recommend it. But Yes, he was very outspoken about many things, including the Falcon, but Bruce Gordon is here to tell you that, nope, it's a good missile, and so 
worth loading on your alert aircraft as you did. That's good stuff, Bruce. All right, so you started talking about performance a little bit. Let's go there next. We can all read about the stats of this thing, but let's ask you, what's the highest you've ever had one and what's the fastest you've ever had one? And maybe that's the same time, but sometimes not. I was a guy who followed the regulations. It's hard to believe, that's good. but I did. No, that's good. I flew the F-106 was set labeled as Mach 2. And on many test flights, I flew it to Mach 2. I did not try to go faster. They said we weren't supposed to go above 50,000 feet without a pressure suit. So I would go to 49,000, but I knew it would go higher, but I didn't go above that. Except once, I believe I was on a U-2 target. Oh, really? I did a snap-up. I snapped up for about 45,000 at supersonic. I snapped up as I went over the top after my snap. I realized that I was at 65,000 feet. And (laughs) I looked down at the world there because I said, this is the highest I'll ever be in my life. So I have flown it to 65,000 feet. I have heard of Several 106 pilots who said they got it to 90,000 feet. Oh, my goodness. In snap-ups. Without a pressure suit? That's yes. playing with fire, Bruce. One of them was flying at 75,000 feet. He was telling, on a straight and level and not 75,000 feet. Uh, he was also on a Bomark shoot after I did mine. His job was to shoot down at the Bomark. I don't know why, but that was Uh what it was. It was going to be at 65,000 feet. He was going to be at 75,000 feet wearing a pressure suit, but the Beaumont ground aborted, so he didn't get his shot. Oh, too bad. But he was up there flying around at 75,000. Let me say about the 106. It was king of the high-altitude skies. Really? There was nothing up there that could match it. I have seen a picture of a 106 in formation with a U-2, way up high. I don't know how high it was, but there's a 106 up there with a U-2. <laughs> so the picture must have been taken by another 106 on the other side. Oh, good point. They were up there with our light wing loading and a powerful engine. We had the same engine as the F-105. At that altitude, we could outturn anything. They said we could outturn the F-15 at altitude, really above 40,000 feet. But at low altitude, we had problems. As your F-105, Colonel Morrissey said, with the same engine as we had, he could take that 105 faster than we could. He could go, I think he said 800 knots. I never had my 106 more than 550 knots indicated. At low altitude. Right. I chickened out. I was trying to see how fast it would go. <laughs> it was labeled 752 knots maximum, but I got down low on the water around Alaska and I was trying to see how fast it would go. And I chickened out. Answer is the thought of running into a seagull at that speed was just frightening. Yes. I said, What am I doing this for? This is insanity. So I came out of burner at about 550 knots. 
But I can say those 105s and 104s were faster at low altitude. But if they came up to high altitude, we could beat anybody. Well, Bruce, I don't know if I should admit this, but I had my motorcycle once on a two-lane highway in Nevada up to 175 miles an hour, and I thought the same thing, except I thought if it's just a little squirrel or a, you know, a bunny rabbit, I'm going to be just a pink mist. So I backed off, and the bike had more. But yeah, going fast down low is always a, a little bit hazardous. So how about G-forces? How many Gs did you pull in that thing? We did not wear G-suits. Really? And I never really pulled G's just to see how many G's I could pull. Generally, we could do our mission because our mission was maneuvering. And I don't think I needed more than about five G's. But the plane was stressed to seven. I don't think I ever tried pulling that much more G's. Okay. Well, maybe there wasn't a need to. Well, next up, we've already talked a little bit about some of the weaknesses, but strengths and weaknesses in general. And again, on this part, as I often do on these interviews, the aircraft wasn't designed to do it all. So, of course, you can't really say it lacks you know, thrust vectoring or something crazy. But as far as the aircraft goes, was there one feature about it you really loved? And then was there one feature you wish they would have either fixed and they just didn't get around to it or didn't have the funding or something? I would have loved to have seen the F-106X with the canard wing. Ah, yes. And they kept improving the radar. The reliability was not good at first. One of your questions was reliability. When we started out, we had vacuum tubes up there, and the vacuum tubes were a problem. They said it was like lining up 300 tube television sets in a row, and if any of them flickered, they would all flicker. So the vacuum tubes were a problem, <laughs> and the vacuum tubes would cause the computer to hang. I learned about computers early through that. What do you do with a hung computer? You restart it. So I would turn off the uh, computer in the air and turn it back on again, and I'd come up with a new computer, and it wasn't hung anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about your favorite feature of the uh, F-106? I feel like you just love this aircraft so much. Was it the handling or the mission, or what was your favorite thing about it? Oh, it was very nice handling, very nice handling. One thing we haven't talked about was air refueling, that when they put air refueling on, we did that off the coast of Korea. Really an important thing that we would take off from Osan, fly across South Korea, and air refuel, and then go up and patrol off the coast of uh, North Korea. I don't think we're going there anymore, but we used to be um, just off the coast of North Korea. We had electronic intelligence planes flying off the coast. And we would protect them. There was a story behind that I told before. Okay. I assume they put a receptacle in for boom refueling, standard Air Force style? Or? We had the receptacle on the F-106. I have flown both with the receptacle with the boom and the probe and with the basket on the F-100. And I greatly liked the receptacle better because it could transfer fuel faster. The whole idea of the receptacle was made because of the B-52 and the need to transfer large amounts of fuel right. to the B-52. 
So I like the probe and receptacle much better than the basket. All right, Bruce, we've got a couple of listener questions I want to run by you, and you've been very generous with your time. So let's call this a lightning round if you want to quick short answers are just fine if you want. Okay. The first is from John F., who says, was Bruce's time mostly in the missiles only 106, or did he also log time in the, quote, six shooter? And uh, if so, which one did you like better? And I can take that one because I think you already told us you only flew the aircraft without the six shooter. It, it came later. That's true. I only flew with the missiles, and I, I liked the missiles, but we really needed that gun. Okay. Anthony Lombardo says, can you elaborate about the cornfield bomber? Now, we've not talked about this yet. Oh, yes. The cornfield bomber. That is famous. Not a great aerodynamic thing. But one of my friends, uh, Captain Gary Faust, was flying in, I believe, 1970, February 1970. He was doing aerial combat tactics. And he lost control of the 106, and it went into a flat spin. And a flat spin is very hard to get out of in a delta wing. And he wasn't able to get out of the spin, so he ejected. The force of the ejection drove the nose down, which broke the spin. And he went out. And as soon as he was out, the no longer had a pilot and the seat, which is hundreds of pounds, mm -hmm. the plane was now nose light. So it then flew at a lower airspeed. And he had it, I believe, close to idle. And it came down. It turned out to be just perfect for everything. He had the gear up, of course. He had, didn't have any drop tanks on. He tried to get rid of them to get out of the spin. And now it just landed in a snow-covered field by itself <laughs> with no pilot on it, and it stopped short of this farmer's house. The farmer looked out his window, and he saw this F-106 land, and what really troubled him, he panicked him, was that it was on the ice and snow, and the engine was still running. So... As the snow melted underneath the weight of the plane, it would keep creeping forward, creeping forward. Oh, my. And was coming toward his house. <laughs> and he, he called the police. <laughs> Not only is the plane here, but it's coming toward my house. It's possessed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but it finally ran out of gas, and the plane was barely damaged. They took it back to depot, repaired it, and put it back into service. <laughs> and the same Gary Faust was able to go back and fly the same airplane that he had ejected from. That's got to be one of a kind. That airplane is now at the Air Force Museum. Wow. And it's very famous. And it's this weird situation of the ejection driving the nose down. And then now it's nose light after the seat's gone. Made a perfect setup. Wonderful. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, question here from John Clark. How successful were the sensor and weapon add-ons, such as the Erst and M61? And if you don't want to answer that one, you could say, were Sidewinders ever integrated into the airplane? I think the answer to that one is no, but maybe they thought about it. As an F-1, I didn't want the Sidewinder. Oh, yeah? Why is that? The AIM-4G was much better than the Sidewinder. Oh. The Sidewinder 
at that time did not even have a cooled warhead, uh, secret head. Okay. It would be suckered off on the edges of clouds. And I learned that thing in the F-100. The F-106's M4G, one of the reasons they picked it, was because it had a cooled head. We had argon cooling in it. Mm -hmm. When the computer would fire it, or the backseater in the F-4's case, it would cool the seeker head. We would then look at a lower infrared band where you could pick out better the signature of burning jet fuel, which was down lower in the infrared band. So the cooled seeker head was much better. The AIM-4G was much more maneuverable than the Sidewinder. And I could say that from the fact that I fired one so closely myself. It was highly maneuverable and could actually be fired at a closer range than the Sidewinder. Oh, wow. No, I did not want the Sidewinder any way, shape, or form. <laughs> you talked about the IRST, the first you called it, uh-huh. infrared search and track. Both the F-102 and the 106 had IRST. It was a good backup system for the radar. But if you had radar, radar was almost always best. You see, in my case, I used it when I had a radar malfunction, but I was still using the radar to detect the target in the first place and bring it in so then I could lock on with my IR. As they say, Infrared is like looking at the world through a soda straw. It's a very spot that you're looking at, whereas radar can cover a much larger area, and radar is not confused by so many extraneous natural IR sources, like the infrared sees everything in the world, including the moon and the sun. And I also went after a, on a low mission, I was suckered off on a tin roof that had the sun shining on it. <laughs> I had both radar and infrared return. I thought it had to be my target. Nope. It was a tin roof and a shed. Uh, Christian Gruder says, since we know Bruce so well now, I would like to know what fourth or fifth gen aircraft he would like to fly today if he still could. I love the F-35. Oh, yeah? I am an F-35 I would love to fly that thing. The idea, I, from the 106, I didn't mention we had a tactical situation display between our legs, mm-hmm. which was rare at that time, which would show our position in relation to friendly aircraft and all that, and enemy aircraft, and the geography, and the bases. All that was on this tactical situation display. Now, you guys all have it now. That was rare at the time. We loved that. Yeah. Back then, you had to create your own situational awareness, and these days, it's all fed to you available right there, it seems like. Yeah, the uh, F-105 people in 104 were talking about flying around with a stopwatch. (laughs) They could have used that tactical situation display. They didn't have it. All right, Bruce. Timothy Schaefer says, how reliable was the MA-1? Could it be counted on to function when needed, or was it as often broken? And if so, what was the most common malfunction? Is this the one that you said earlier you would turn it off and back on? Yes, that was when it had vacuum tubes. Okay. When it had vacuum tubes, it was quite unreliable, but I learned to use it, turn it back on and off, you know, off and on. I could bring it back up. 
And we did have range gate drift, which was easy to fix. And I think they fixed it later, but it was constantly being upgraded. But it did have the world's best counter countermeasure system. Mm-hmm. I don't think any other airplane could compare to it in counter countermeasures. You, uh, yeah. Other airplanes, you couldn't even see their jamming when they jammed you. No, you talked about that before. That's impressive. All right. Jody Pombrio says, how fast could they get out of the chocks on alert in the F-106 compared to the F-102? I knew some guys who were maintainers on the 106, and they used to say it could scramble faster even than the F-15 Eagle. Oh, they could go faster than the F-15 Eagle, I'm almost sure. The trouble is, I could go awful fast in the 102. I could get the F-102 and did get the F-102 off the ground, wheels, uh, brake release, in two and a half minutes after scramble. Wow. The F-106, I think it took me five minutes to get sprint off the ground. I have a video there called Coco Scramble, where in South Korea, we had a exercise, uh, no-notice exercise, where they blew the air raid siren. Actually, we were asleep in our bunks. Uh, it was early morning. They blew the air raid siren for the base and broadcast Coco Scramble, Coco Scramble on the loudspeakers. So we knew it was everybody get off and down the runway as fast as you can. And to make a long story short, we had all of our F-106s got down the runway before the first F-4 got to the runway. Okay? So we could scramble. We were about five minutes south of the demilitarized zone. So we knew we had to be able to get off the ground fast, and we could. Okay. All right, Bruce, I've got a question from Jared about the F-106 dogfighting with the F-4. We've already answered that one. So the last question is, Steve Bishop wants to know, why wasn't the F-106 used in Vietnam? And uh, he says he was reading on Wikipedia that it was contemplated for it, but never used. So you were around during that time? Any insight on that? Of course, we didn't have the gun at that time, okay. and we didn't have a radar warning uh, receiver. We could have been modified to have it, but also the F-106 could have flown all those missions over. We had so much range that we could have taken off from, say, Yuban with those F-4s, and we could. they sometimes had one or two refuelings. The F-106 could have gone up to our normal cruise altitude at 40,000 feet. We could have cruised over to Hanoi and uh, waited around there for about 30 minutes, driving circles, and flown back without any air refueling at all. (laughs) We had the range, but the North Vietnamese did not come out and fight for the fun of fighting. They would not come out and fight our F-4s that were out looking for mates. They would only attack planes that were loaded with bombs that they were going to drop. If you weren't loaded with bombs and weren't a threat to them, they would not fight. So the MiG-21s simply would not come up to fight. Now, if we had gone down low, they might have been able to do it to us. The 106 is best above 20,000 feet, and you talk about to these F-4 and 105 people, and they're seldom above 20,000 feet. The war in Vietnam was a low-altitude war. Mm. 
and the 106 was king of the high altitude skies. It wasn't our war. Well, then that's probably good that they didn't force it because that could have been an ugly result otherwise. So I think we could have outmaneuvered SAMs because the SAMs were getting the people were at low altitude. And we could outturn a SAM up there easily. I think we could have outturned SAMs, but we needed some warning. Right. Yeah, well, if you didn't have that, that could be a problem. Mm. Bruce, I read that the F-106 remained in service in some capacity till 1988. Which one lasted longer, Bruce Gordon or uh, the F-106? <laughs> the F-106 lasted longer. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I got out in 76, yeah. All right, okay. And so you've gone on to other things. What does the future hold for you now? I mean, you're pretty active on Twitter and YouTube. You've got a book out. What else is on your list? Yeah, I've got my book, Spirit of Attack, which I think you've got data on that on your website. But I'm actually having that translated into Russian. Oh, really? I have made contact with a Russian man who read it in Russia, and he's a uh, DCS gamer guy. He speaks English well, and he's trying to translate it into Russian. And so I gave him permission, and I'm helping him out with the uh, translation. It'd be great to have my book come out in Russian. Well, since their uh, predecessors there in the Soviet Union have a role in your book, I think that makes sense. Yes. All right. Any more books on the future or any other plans, big plans? No. I have my uh, one great-grandchild already, another great-grandchild on the way. Wow. So I'm now 86 years old, so I think I love these uh, talks. I love your speakers, and I just joined you as a patron. I think you're a great source of information. We need to pass on to the younger generations all the things that we did, and the best way is telling it in the way you're doing it. Well. Bruce, I wish you had not signed up because I was actually contemplating sending you a gift of some sort, but <laughs> you're extremely generous with your time and with your knowledge. And I hope I speak for the listeners that you have just been such a joy for us over these last couple of months as we've gone through the Century Series. You're a wealth of information and you, you certainly love to share it. Thank you. All right. Well, we have one final question and I don't think I've asked you this anywhere before, but I think I know the answer. We generally ask our guests how they got their call sign, but I'm not even sure if you have one. No, we didn't. And that was for security purposes. Ah. I'm surprised that it was reversed and that you got call signs. In my day, we were prohibited from using call signs to identify the person. Because if you knew who the person was, then you could track what squadron he was in. And you could track anywhere that squadron moved throughout the world. So for security reasons, uh, we did not have personal call signs. On a scramble, for instance, the um, first flight off on a scramble was red flight. The second flight up was white flight. The third flight was blue flight. Okay? Red, white, and blue. I think I see a pattern here. Yep. All right, Bruce. Well, like I said, folks already think of you as part of the show. I think I'm going to definitely keep you uh, very close here to us and look for a way to bring you back. And you certainly have, again, such a wealth of experience, but just want to thank you for everything and for explaining the F-106 today. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Well, you know what? I don't know how much more there is to say than that, but 
That's the F-106, and that's Bruce, and man, both are amazing. Bruce, thanks again. I can't believe you're supporting the show. I am grateful for that, but honestly, I owe you big time, and so we're going to do what we can. Bruce told me later that he's already sold a lot more books, so that's great. Folks, please look for Bruce Gordon on YouTube and Twitter, and uh, look for his book, The Spirit of Attack. Really do thank him for all his help for the Century Series. I don't know what else there is to say about the F-106. I think we covered it. I told you before, we had a couple challenges with the microphones. Hope it wasn't too painful for you, and my voice is still a little bit strained, so this has just been one of those difficult interviews or episodes, I should say, for me. Just I need to get, maybe take some warm tea or something. Plus, I kind of went off on some of those news articles earlier. Anyway, eh, once in a while, you just got to clear it all out of there. You know, you can't let it build up. I hope you really enjoyed the Century Series. Man, I just think these aircraft are so amazing. And it's really just surprising to me to learn what they went through in the 50s and, you know, as they continued to develop these in the 60s. But golly, a lot of these were Mach 2 capable. Most of them were single engine, nuclear air-to-air weapons. You know, the F-104, super fast, but couldn't turn worth a flip. And now these ground-based things, which, you know, they were doing back in the 60s, which when I came in, we were still trying to figure out how to do Link 4 and later Link 16. So I just really enjoyed the Century series, and that's going to do it for the whole series. Next week, we've got an interesting discussion on something completely different, and that is on purpose. We're actually going to talk about the law of armed conflict and why, for example, when I see friendlies that are being attacked, I can't just walk away thinking, eh, they'll probably figure it out. There's the obligation of self-defense. And what's the difference between a hostile and a bandit? And why can't I shoot one, but I can the other? Or a bogey, or an outlaw, or a friendly. So all that stuff's coming up next week. But before we wrap up, you know the drill. We have to thank our new Patreon strike lead, Jody Pombrio. And we have a new air boss, Jason Deal. That's the one who submitted the question earlier about what it feels like on the cat. Remember, please, that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So we'll see you in about 10 days for the law of armed conflict. In the meantime, be well, do something nice for each other, take care of yourself, and we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.